What's up, everybody? Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of my in work in progress podcast here. <laughs> I figured today I would take the top three stories of the year since we're in a new year here and uh, focus on some some positivity from last year and then we'll take a look at what's to look forward to next week. So let's jump right into it. First story I would say of the year was Ukraine. This was huge for my channel and Twitch, I think in general for politics. I know that all, a lot of the politics creators benefited from everything from talking about the Ukraine crisis to watching the news to even tuning into CCTV cameras. I remember seeing people having an array of cameras on their streams and just kind of waiting for something to happen. So it was very interesting to see how Twitch covered the Ukraine crisis. And I personally, I felt an obligation to bring a mature voice to it. We, we didn't have any big liberal creators on the platform, still don't. And all we had were more anti-US, um, borderline pro-Russia voices who were dominating, and I felt the need to step up a bit. Uh, Dylan Burns also was a huge voice. He was even in a Washington Post article, quoted in a Washington Post article along with some other streamers, and that's kind of my goal is to get to that point for the next big thing where I am who the newspapers come to for some quotes uh, because I think I have, like I said, a more mature and positive voice and can, can bring a different perspective from Twitch. Um, that being said, uh, what I did with my time real quickly was I just, I watched a lot of news with my stream and kind of shut up and let international news sources weigh in on what was going on. And in between segments, I would interject and say my thoughts and, uh, just kind of take it in. But, but my goal was really to let the experts talk and not influence the way people felt about it one way or the other. And, and I think that was rewarded. I had a lot of big streamers uh, supporting me at the time, and I had a big crowd for for a while there, and it was it was really touching, and and I appreciate people trusted me with being their their source and uh, not only the news, what was going on in Ukraine, but also of community. I think it's important. Uh, it's it's a sign of trust if people let your your community be the voices that are around them. So that being said, as far as the actual story of Ukraine, um, boy, it, it was a shocker to me, like everybody else, the survival of the Ukrainian people. I, we've all been told for years that Russia is a superpower and their military is, is um, second to ours in China, you know, like top three at least in the world, and uh, that they would just run over the Ukrainian people, but that didn't happen. And I was as shocked as anybody, but uplifted by the fight of these people. And after four years of the Trump administration and <clears throat> the pandemic uh, ruining our lives for years, it was, uh, I hate to say, a feel-good story and that the Ukrainian people fought back and, and really uh, checked Russia, uh, uh, adversary, an aggressor in the world, a uh, uh, constant thorn in, in the Western world side, and really a gut punch to Russia. And it, and it was welcomed by a lot of us. It is also a big pushback on autocracy versus democracy. Uh, democracy has been, been taking some hits the last couple of years as authoritarian regimes rise. 
and come to power. And a lot of people wondering, can democracy even function in the modern world with social media and the internet and just the way we live our lives? You know, can we make decisions together and move our country forward? And, and uh, Or is it better to have a strong person in charge making most of the decisions and, and democracy take a back seat? And it, it was um, a challenge there for a while. But with Donald Trump losing in 2020 and the Ukrainians uh, fighting back, it showed that democracy really is advantageous when it comes to a conflict, for example, because the people care, they're invested. Whereas an authoritarian government, everybody's afraid to say no to the, the people in charge. And we saw the holes in Russia's military, their planning, their execution, and can't help but think a lot of that was due to people being afraid to say no and provide bad news to Putin and the regime. And in a democracy, we, we um, have channels to do that and we have the ability to do that. So it was a big win for democracy to see what Ukraine had done. And um, I think it's to the world's advantage that Russia has been taken down a peg both uh, with their, their stature on the world stage where they became a pariah essentially with, with everybody turning their back on them except for a few allies and their military getting just decimated by the Ukrainians using Western weapons, uh, unlimited supply of these weapons it seems, which is good because Russia uh, has lost, according to articles I've read, they've, they've lost uh, half of their military equipment and and their force and that's not stuff you replace easily the people or the equipment i mean how quickly can you build tanks and armored vehicles and missiles i mean that stuff takes time and especially with sanctions not allowing microprocessors to be sent to russia or other parts uh, they're left with with scrounging for old artillery from north korea or working with the uh, iranians on getting drones or something like that and and now the u.s is talking about a patriot missile defense system which is the most advanced in the world and that that is a sign of more advanced systems to come for the ukrainians so um really good to see russia uh, be revealed as a paper tiger and they also sell a lot of military equipment to the rest of the world so that they're they're base of customers is going to decline and for their military equipment based on the effectiveness of it on the battlefield here and what it's being used for in Ukraine. On another note, it, it, it gave by the Ukraine conflict gave Biden a chance to bring America back to its leadership position on the world stage. Donald Trump had purposefully pulled us back from our position as the world's police and leader and uh, trust of the whole world as well. Our Western allies, for the first time in a long time, looked at us and wondered if they could trust us. And Biden restored that trust. He, he led from a position of strength the entire time. And, and you're, you're hard-pressed to find anyone who says Biden's done a bad job with Ukraine. Of course, there are some loud voices out there, but it's a minority, even of the Republican Party, where... For example, when Zelensky came to America on his first 
international trip since the conflict started. First time he left the country coming here to D.C. He not only met with Biden and the White House and Democrats, but he also met with Republicans. And Mitch McConnell was thrilled to take a picture with him and boast about our support for Ukraine. So this, this is a bipartisan issue that has brought us together as Americans and um, has restored our prestige on the international stage to the point where Finland and Sweden have gotten off the sidelines and decided they've got to join NATO for, for their, their country's best interests. And that's huge. These are not tiny little countries that are dependent on us. They bring their own militaries and, and um, a lot to the table. So huge. And finally, I'll say that there's now talk of the war ending this year, 2023, which I, I never would have thought. I thought this was going to drag on for years and years. But it seems that both sides are gearing up for an offensive in the spring, and we could see some sort of stalemate or peace talks come in the summer of this year, which would be incredible. And the Ukrainians have the advantage now where the Russians, like I said, are running out of people and equipment, but the Ukrainians are being, being given more and more. The, you know, you look at the GDP of the country supporting Ukraine and it's like 30 trillion versus Russia's GDP of 1.6 trillion or something like that. And um, they just, they, they just don't have the supply chain for re-upping their military and they're not going to use nuclear weapons. That would be the end of Putin's regime. It wouldn't be the end of the world. It wouldn't be the end of Russia. It would be the end of Putin because at that point, the people who could take Putin out and the people around him uh, will make a decision, in my opinion, that it's just not worth it moving forward, that they're going to lose too much. They've got a pretty good thing going there, even with everything that's happened. And they could just blame it on Putin getting cancer and going crazy or something like that and and restore Russia to its leadership position in the world and um, keep moving forward with their criminal syndicate, uh, which is what it is in the end. I mean, 140 million people in Russia are not in on this this um, movement of Russia attacking its neighbors. I mean, the, a lot of these, most of these people are victims of this criminal racket that controls their country. And, and I really hope that they see some freedom in the end too. And, and we might see the end of re, uh, Putin regime because of this conflict. So a lot of change in the world happening right now. It's, it's exciting to live through it. It's, it's horrific and terrifying, but I think that the history books will, will speak fondly of, of these times and in, in that they led to a lot of change. Uh, it just sucks. You and I have to live through it, but uh, if, if we can lower the temperature in the world by getting rid of some of these bad actors after this, then so be it. I'm here for it. So very optimistic about this year and the Ukraine conflict coming to an end. And that would just be wonderful for the United States so that we can uh, focus on more domestic things. So there you go. The Ukraine crisis, the one of the biggest stories of the year, for sure. Story number two of 2022, the FBI raiding Mar-a-Lago. I've been surprised at other 2022 best of lists, and I haven't seen this on there. It, it's it's almost like people forgot about how big of a deal this is, and that's kind of part of my gripe about this story. But let's let's get into this. So what a shocker on Monday, August 8th, the FBI raids Mar-a-Lago 
President Trump's, ex-President Trump's primary residence. This was a huge escalation by the Department of Justice. First time in our nation's history that the FBI executed a search warrant on an ex-president. Hopefully it's the last. Um, but we found out that there were documents that belong to you and I, the American people, being stored illegally at Mar-a-Lago. And a lot of them. So the story went all the way back to May 2021 when the National Archives, a government agency most people probably never even heard of before, realized that they didn't have certain items from the Trump administration, such as his love letter from Kim Jong-un, the ruler of North Korea. And so they sent an inquiry to Trump, and, and Trump stalled forever. Uh, it wasn't until January of 2022 that the National Archives finally got some boxes of documents, and they realized that within this mess of documents were some classified documents. And so shocked, they made a criminal referral to the Department of Justice, who started looking into it, and we found out that over time, that a subpoena eventually was issued, which means the Trump administration still not cooperating or Trump still not cooperating with the Department of Justice. And they turn over some more documents and they even send a letter signed by one of Trump's lawyers on his behalf saying, that's it. We don't have anything else. And the FBI, uh, after having subpoenaed some videotape of cameras outside of the rooms where these documents were kept in a basement, they, they, it turns out they saw one of Trump's assistants moving boxes to his private residence. They questioned this guy once. He said, I don't know. I didn't, didn't do anything. And then he seemed to remember doing it the second time or something like that. I mean, what do you expect from the Trump world? But um, they had no other option but to execute a search warrant and see what else was being held there. And boy, that they hit gold because they found a ton of stuff. In the end, uh, 13,000 documents recovered. 325 of them were classified. And, and at least two more documents were recovered months later at other Trump locations like a storage facility. So what the hell was Trump doing with all this stuff? And, and we don't know. And to me, that's the biggest question is the why. And we, we, there is a why with the FBI, too, because of the three charges that the search warrant referenced, one of them was the Espionage Act, which involves intent. What, what were you going to do with this stuff? Was it to be sold to foreign governments and put the United States in harm's way? It's not that Trump's guilty of that, but that was one of the questions that they're looking into. And the other two uh, charges were theft or destruction of government records and obstruction of an investigation, which is the one that has the harshest penalty, believe it or not, 20 years. So this is serious stuff. And it seems like a pretty black and white, open and shut case here against Trump. They even found some documents in his desk, his personal desk next to his ID, uh, his passport. They had some classified documents. I mean, you, this is your, you're caught red handed, man. Your ID was with evidence of the crime. And I'm sorry, but it's a crime for an ex-president to keep this stuff. He, he claims that all ex-presidents have done this, including Obama, but it's just not true. Obama worked with the National Archives to set up a facility in Chicago that he could go to and use to review documents from the National Archive. I mean, th this is... 
you know, and he's claiming that it's the same thing as what he did. Nothing could be further from the truth. Trump kept these documents, which belong to you and I. It, these were dangerous documents, including nuclear secrets, secrets about other countries, uh, personnel files for things like CIA officers and such. I mean, this is this is just wild. And and in the end, honestly, I think this is what takes Trump down. The January 6th stuff is pretty damning as well, but it's probably going to be a lot harder to find an email or something of Trump saying, yeah, I know I lost, but I want to get these people to violently attack the Capitol so I can try to stop the peaceful transfer of power. I, I don't think they're going to have a smoking gun over there like that. Perhaps for some of the underlings, the lieutenants, but... When it comes to the Mar-a-Lago document case, it seems pretty bad for Trump. And the, the obstruction charge is pretty evident, too, where he sent a, a letter from his lawyer saying, hey, we don't have anything else. And then the FBI found a bunch of other stuff. And that videotape of the cameras is going to be interesting once we find out exactly what's on there. I wouldn't be surprised if there's something as comical as Trump walking out with a box that has huge word classified on the side or something and going into his residence, you know, after telling the FBI, I ain't got nothing. So very, very interesting. But um, the reason why I put this as one of the top stories of 2022 is because it was finally showing that the Department of Justice is not going to go easy on Trump. And there's been a lot of critics out there saying that this is going to be business as usual for the United States and the Department of Justice and Biden, and he's not going to do anything. And so I was thrilled to see Merrick Garland step up and sign off on the execution of a search warrant. Again, for the first time against an ex-president, showing that this is unprecedented and uncharted territory that we're willing to go to in order to enact justice. And let's see if charges come down. But Trump never, ever expected the FBI to raid his home. And and you can tell just by the way he kept these documents. He, he just never thought that Merrick Garland and Biden would step up like that. And I'm so glad that they have. And now we've got this special counsel, Jack Smith, who people know very little about because he's been insulated from politics, having worked overseas at The Hague since 2018 on pursuing war criminals, uh, specifically related to Kosovo, from what I read. And he's still over there due to a bicycle in injury that he's nursing. I think he broke his leg or something like that. But it's good that he's kind of away from things and he, he can't be um, seen and pursued and attacked uh, like people that are here in America. So I, I think we're just getting started with these investigations into Trump. And that's going to be a big thing in 2023 is the, the legal cases against Trump. I, I think he's in a lot of trouble. And this is going to be quite the year for the future of our country as we see justice come down on Trump. Um, he thought he was going to get away with everything, and it doesn't appear to be the case. So fingers crossed that they nail him on some of these serious charges. I'm not scared of him. This is always something that the right will say, that we're trying to take down Trump because we're scared of him. I actually think Trump is good for business for the Democrats, and there's evidence of that. 
Ever since Trump got elected in 2016 by lying to everybody, he has lost three major elections, 2018, 2020, and 2022 now with the midterms, with these Trump-endorsed extremist candidates just dragging the whole ticket down and 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 poo-pooing on their red wave, which I'll actually talk about in the next story. But I think Trump's good for the Democrats, uh, even when he's on the ballot, especially uh, if Biden were to run against him in 2024, which I think Biden will be announcing soon that it's official. Um, but I'm not so confident Trump will make it to the finish line. In fact, I think his chances are pretty slim of being the GOP nominee in 2024. Uh, it would be a layup for Biden to defeat him again. He, he is just not ex as exciting as he once was. He's a drag on the party. And I, I think um, he's a relic of the past at this point. And, but he's not going anywhere. Imagine when Trump loses in the GOP primary. Do you think he's going to get behind the other candidate and say, we've got to unite guys and defeat these Democrats? No shot. He's going to say he was cheated. He was robbed. And he's going to demand that his people stick with him and, and his narrative. And that's just going to cause tons of problems for the GOP's nominee in 2024. Up and down the ticket, not just for the president, but for Senate, House, state houses, on and on. So huge story in 2022 of Mar-a-Lago getting raided by the FBI. Wow, what a story. Okay, the final big story of the year. And there were so many stories to pick from. Trust me, there was a lot of stuff. Uh, but I'll just focus on these three. The final one, I would say, is the Democrats doing much better in the midterms than most people anticipated. Not to toot my own horn, but I stayed optimistic, cautiously optimistic about the Democrats' chances. I never thought that we would gain seats in the House or have a complete beatdown of the Republicans in the Senate. I always knew it was going to be tough, especially on the state level. But I, I didn't buy the red tsunami narrative that was being put out there for a couple of reasons. Number one, a lot of the media was desperate for any information to tell them how things were going to go one way or the other. And the right deployed a new strategy this cycle of dumping a bunch of junk polls close to the midterms to make it seem like their Republicans were doing better than they were. Now, this wasn't just for political reasons. In fact, I would probably say that took a back seat to financial reasons. And the, the explanation for that is that outlets like Fox, Fox News or Charlie Kirk's YouTube channel or whatever it is, they're going to do better when they're able to give good news to their audience. Nobody wants to hear bad news, right? It's depressing. You're going to tune out after a while. So in an attempt to pursue good news, the right got punch drunk on the idea of a red tsunami coming. And history says that the party in the White House should lose seats in the first midterm. So, you know, everything was, was in their favor until Roe v. Wade got overturned. And that pissed off a lot of people. And, and we actually had some data showing what was going to happen in the elections because we had the a couple of special elections like in New York. We had the constitutional amendment in Kansas that was struck down by quite a bit, taking away the right to abortion. And, and uh, a lot of people thought, well, that energy is not going to keep up 
all the way to the midterms because it was like August when when that all went down or June, um, June when the Roe v. Wade was overturned and then August when when people had a chance to weigh in on it. And, you know, it, it, I, I guess in a pessimistic uh, way, you could think that people would lose energy and not be as interested to come out. But the Democrats, to their credit, focused on abortion, focused on democracy, and the January 6th Select Committee played a big part in keeping that at top of mind for people. But also these, these election-denying candidates that were supported by Trump that continued this MAGA-ism into the midterms. Uh, these people were really despised by the voters, and not just Democrats, but moderates and independents as well. And people had no stomach for this extremism that a lot of these candidates brought. And, they, and most of them lost the uh, extremist candidates. People like Carrie Lake and um, Doug Mastriano, two gubernatorial candidates who were really nasty and um, shunned even the media, thinking that they could just get away with the, the power of the wave that they saw coming. And there were real egregious actors out there with no accountability, like Steve Bannon and his War Room podcast, who predicted anywhere from 50 to 100 seats for the House Republicans, which did not turn out to be. And, and, and um, of course, they accept no blame, and, and they'll, they'll shift the blame to whatever, some other person. And in Steve Bannon's case, it was, well, poor campaigns were run, right? It's like one of these things that you can't, you can't really um, analyze that that well with numbers, like a poor campaign was run, or poor candidate quality, right? It's it's just a real um, way to dismiss blame. Uh, but what do you expect from the right? The, you know, the Democrats are pretty smart about doing postmortems and accepting fault and saying, you know what, what can we do to improve? Which they did in 2020. Uh, even though we won the White House, we lost a lot of seats down ballot, and Democrats said, whoa. We got to figure out what's going on here, and and I think they they made some some good changes that led to the midterm results. Uh, a lot of that was investing in in ground game a lot more, even more than digital in some places. Um, but these Republican junk polls caused some problems that we might have done even better in the midterms if we if the media and just regular Americans didn't take the bait of the junk polls on the right that made their candidates look like they do them better. Um, for example, in, in places like Washington State, where Patty Murray was up for re-election in the Senate, and she had, she had won easily over and over, and, and uh, this time proved to be uh, just as easy of a win for her, even though there were polls that showed she was neck and neck with her opponent. And same thing in New Hampshire with um, uh, Maggie Hassan, and even in like Michigan, where there were some polls that showed Tudor Dixon, the Republican candidate, close to Gretchen Whitmer, and and in the end, the, the, all of these Republican candidates got their got whooped on hard. But the problem was Democrats spent some money on these races that that they easily won, and that money could have gone to uh, races like Mandela Barnes versus Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, where he lost by about a percent. Uh, same thing as uh, like Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, where she got within a few points uh, of of her opponent. So maybe if we would have invested a little more in some of these other races, we could have done better. 
um, Tim Ryan in Ohio, maybe. I don't know. It's it's tough to say. But the Democrats did did a stellar job in the midterms. Again, focusing on democracy with the January 6th Select Committee and Biden making a big speech about that the Wednesday before the midterms, which he got a lot of grief for because people were saying, hey, crime and inflation are the number two, the two big issues that people care about. Why are the Democrats not focused on that? Well, we weren't focused on that because it's not issues that were in our favor. You know what I mean? I mean what are we supposed to do? The inflation is high. We're, we're looked at as in control. And, and you know, what are we going to say? So obviously we want to shift people's attention to other issues. And, and it turned out that people cared about these issues a lot. And exit polls proved that. And obviously the results of the election proved that. But, um, it was just a shocker to so many people to see the Dems do do as well as they did. And, and honestly, I was surprised they did as well as they did. I would have loved to see them do a little better. But I, I, was, um, I wasn't completely caught off guard by it because I was cautiously optimistic based on anal, anal, analysis, analysis that I was seeing. One of the last thing as far as numbers go is the early voting results were huge for us. Republicans really screwed up, and, and I... Curious to see how they change course here because early voting was huge for the Democrats. We embraced it. We not only mail-in voting, but encouraging people to go vote early at voting centers. And there was this excitement in the air about how many people were voting early and the records being broken. And, and you felt the, the, the desire to be a part of it. I got caught up in it and I went and submitted my ballot about a week early, whereas normally I would take my ballot to the voting center or drop it off on election day just so I could take as long as I want with my ballot, filling it out at home or just to see the energy of the voting places on election day. It's kind of fun, right? I, I used to love going with my parents and seeing everybody voting and it's just kind of cool. But this year, I voted about a week early for two reasons. One, I wanted to be a part of the big excitement of the numbers, breaking records, millions of people. And, and there were records broken and, and um, uh, in places like Georgia and Pennsylvania, people were getting very excited. And, and, and that's great because they felt like their vote matters. And it does. And, and it's huge for us. Um, but also, I, I read that as soon as you turn in your ballot you will stop receiving text messages, emails, mailers, all that, because that's how sophisticated the marketing campaigns are for these campaigns now, that they are constantly updated with who, who has submitted their ballot and who hasn't, and they will target voters who haven't. In fact, I knocked doors for Katie Porter in, um, in her district for her re-election campaign because the numbers were showing she was a little close with her opponent, and it turned out her race was one of the last races to be called, honestly. So it's good that I did, even though she won by a lot in the uh, comfortable margin in the end, I think 4% or something. But in any case, um, in the app that we were using to knock on doors, we were knocking on doors for registered Democrats who had not returned their ballot yet the weekend before the election. That That is a level of sophistication I have not seen before. In the past, when I've knocked doors, it's just been people who are registered Democrat or no party affiliation in order to encourage them to vote. And so many people would tell me, if I even got someone to answer the door, that they already voted. And so I was pleasantly surprised with this level of sophistication that I saw in the, the midterms. And I think that's all part of the ground game and just focusing on technology and, um, you know, the idea of running TV ads 
is kind of a thing of the past and and even uh, targeted digital ads is is kind of uh, not as effective as just constant ground game organizing and having locals be the leaders and getting people out. I mean, it, it's really something that pays off tremendously, and I'm happy to see the Democrats embrace that. Now, in, in the end, we gained a seat in the Senate, which is huge because um, for, for many reasons, the 50-50 split Senate was a nightmare. We had to share power with the Republicans. That meant all the com committees were split evenly. Uh, it held back investigations. It held back the ability to subpoena individuals or organizations. It caused Kamala Harris to not be able to be a full VP because she had to babysit the Senate with tie-breaking votes in D.C. Um, and it slowed down the confirmation of judges and, and uh, on and on and on. It was problematic. But now that we have one extra seat... We get uh, more seats on committees. It means we can pick up investigations where the House left off uh, because the Republicans controlling the House with 222 to 213, it's not a big advantage for them. Only, you know, five, four seats um, over the 218 vote threshold to get anything done since half of 435 is 217 and a half. So, you got to have 218 to, to accomplish anything. And the reason, even though Pelosi had the same slim majority for the last two years, she was able to get a ton of stuff done, partly because of remote voting, which allowed members to not have to be in the chamber and, and another member could vote for up to 10 members. And this was huge for us um, and for governing the chamber. Kevin McCarthy is sworn to get rid of that. He is the... All, all likely speaker of the house and leader of the Republicans. He's going to get rid of that, shoot himself in the foot for no reason at all. And that's going to make his job governing harder as if he didn't already have a difficult time with the, the, the five families, as they call it. There's these, these different groups like the house freedom caucus, the problem solvers caucus, the, um, you know, and the moderates have their own caucuses that, that are there. And, and, um, it's going to be hard to bring all these groups together and govern for Kevin McCarthy. Uh, in, and the vote on Tuesday is going to be interesting. Nobody knows if you've got the votes. There are never Kevins out there, at least five of them, who say, I'll never vote for Kevin McCarthy no matter what. And then there's moderates out there who said, I'm only voting for Kevin McCarthy, no one else. So if if we get past the first ballot and nobody is is chosen as the speaker, then that'll be the first time in a, literally a hundred years. 1923 was the last time that it went to more than one ballot. And I think it was nine ballots at that time. So I'm excited to watch it. And, and it's it's just no matter what happens in the end, just the fact that the Republicans are in, still in disarray the weekend before the vote is is great for us on the left because we're in lockstep. We, we had a seamless transition of power from Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn to the, the new leaders, Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and Pete Aguilar. And I'm excited for these guys. They have energy, and I'm thrilled to see um, Hakeem Jeffries and the gang on the attack for the next two years because I think they bring energy that Pelosi and others just couldn't do. Being older and and a little more put together, you know, uh, Hakeem Jeffries is a little looser of a cannon, so I'm excited. I think I don't think people realize the uh, what's to come soon here. 
Um, the other interesting thing about the Republicans taking over the House is Marjorie Taylor Greene's ascension to power. She has become a um, a vote whipper for Kevin McCarthy. He he made some deal with her quickly in the beginning. Uh, I think it had to do with investigating uh, Hunter Biden's laptop and Mayorkas, the Secretary of Department of Homeland Security's. Uh, at the southern border and some other nonsense uh, in order to win her over. But she's she's a power broker now. She's gone from just crazy person who they're all scared of to someone who's out there whipping votes for the establishment. And there's a lot of people unhappy with her about that. I mean, she supposedly has been feuding with Lauren Boebert and other MAGA extremists for a while, but now it's out in the open. I had never seen them attack each other in the open, but they were on Twitter going at each other. And I think it's just a taste of what's to come for the GOP in the next two years. So I'm here for it. Uh, obviously, for governing our country, losing the House sucks because there are a few things we have to pass in the House no matter what, like funding the government, even though we're good with that till the end of September, thanks to this existing Congress, 117th Congress. They knew these Republicans would be problematic. And that includes the Senate Republicans like Mitch McConnell looking at his his incoming GOP colleagues in the House thinking these guys are clowns and they can't get anything done, so we better get this put away. But we got the debt ceiling fight coming up early next year, and that, that's going to be something that the House Republicans are going to have to play ball on. So very, very interesting uh, to see what happens with our friends in the House. Uh, but I think Democrats are in a good position to uh, fight with them for the next two years, and, and I think people are going to be pleasantly surprised at the 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 level of fight and the uh, ferocity of the Democrats, ferocity of the Democrats uh, over the next two years, something that they haven't seen before because the older generation was in charge. So I'm excited and optimistic and looking forward to the 118th Congress. They get, again, they get sworn in on Tuesday. We'll be watching it live on the channel. So hopefully a lot of you guys can make it. And um, I'll see you there. So there you go. The third big story of 2022 was the Democrats doing much better in the midterms than most people thought. And uh, very exciting and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful boost for the Democrats. Okay, what's to come in the next week? So the biggest thing is what I just talked about, the Speaker of the House vote on Tuesday. That's supposed to start around noon Eastern. So I'll be live for that a little bit before as well, just to catch up with everybody. But I looked at the Speaker of the House vote from 2021, and it, it took about three hours. And the, the reason why is everybody has to stand up and say who they're voting for, and the clerk confirms it. So it, it, it's not a secret ballot or anything. You really got to be out there in front of all your colleagues. So I'd expect a little drama. I, I'm hoping for multiple ballots in order to... So, so that there's more chaos in the Republican Party and, and just to add to the drama and the excitement of it all. But Democrats will just be watching from the sidelines as they're, they are in lockstep. They'll all vote for Hakeem Jeffries. Maybe one or two will vote for someone else. But it's going to be uh, very interesting to watch it all unfold and to see if Kevin McCarthy has the votes. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. He can only afford to lose four votes. So if five people don't vote for him, he's in trouble. Now, there is one caveat it is based on the number of members present in the chamber. So that that could lower the threshold. Also, people can vote present and lower the threshold. So there are some ca cowardly ways out of uh, saving face, shall we say, for 
the Republicans who claim they'll never vote for Kemp and they, they could just vote present. And that way they didn't vote for Kevin, you know, but they didn't exactly vote for someone else to, to make his job harder to become a speaker. But we'll see how far these guys pull it, push it. You know, people like Matt Gates have said, there's no way, no how I'm voting for Kevin McCarthy. So let's see if he sticks to his guns. I don't know. I don't believe any of these guys. Um, and I'm also curious to see what happens with this George Santos clown who won, who's the congressman elect from New York's third congressional district. He's the uh, talented Mr. Ripley, whose whose life is just an all, all a mystery and made up. Kevin McCarthy and other leadership in the GOP has come in completely silent on this guy because they need his vote. But what happens after Kevin gets his vote and becomes Speaker of the House? Which, which by the way, I think Kevin McCarthy's the next Speaker of the House just because there's no alternative. And I think Republicans are fully aware of how damaging it'll be if they don't get him elected speaker on the first ballot, let alone after a few ballots. A um, hundred um, years ago, it went to nine ballots, from what I recall. The last time there were multiple ballots. So th this could take a while if, if things uh, don't go well. But I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they get it locked away on the first ballot and there's no dr no real drama um, but what do they do with this guy, George Santos, after that? Do they open up an ethics investigation? Do they threaten to kick him out? Do they censure him? Like, well, I, I'm really curious to see how far the Republicans take it because the outrage is just beginning on this guy and the investigations are looking pretty serious from county district attorneys to the U.S. attorney of eastern New York looking into his finances and such. So it's one thing to lie about where you went to school. It's another thing to cheat on your FEC filings and say you, you got a bunch of Ubers for $199.99, one cent below the $200 mark that you need to show receipts. So, uh, you know, the, that, and that's just the least of his problems with his financial disclosures, but um, keep an eye out for that. That's going to be wild. And, and as far as just to, to dovetail on, on the, the Speaker of the House vote on Tuesday. I'm excited to see the Democrats, uh, the new leadership, Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and Pete Aguilar. I think Hakeem Jeffries is an attack dog. This guy brings a level of energy that people haven't seen before. Uh, he's got no problem connecting with folks. He, he quotes Biggie Smalls. He goes after people like Clarence Thomas, calling him Brother Thomas. I mean, it's he, he is a, a clippable guy, and I'm excited to see him unleashed and, and to do what he wants his way. And I, I think he was made to be in the minority. Uh, obviously, I think he'd be a great leader, a speaker, but I think uh, he's going to really find his groove in the minority as he gets to attack the Republicans nonstop. And boy, I think they will really, really hate him after a while. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. He is no shrinking violent either. Um, and then one other thing that I want to see in the coming week, which isn't isn't on the schedule, but I, 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 it is a bit of a criticism of the Democrats, is a rare criticism from me, is we need to show force at the southern border. We are losing the battle. It, there is a flood of humanity. There is a humanitarian crisis at our southern border with tens of thousands of people who are desperate coming from countries where they're escaping communism, they are escaping uh, economic problems, and they have no solution, and they see us as a place of hope, and we really need to embrace that. We have the ability to. We can take in tons of these people. We had no problem taking in people from Ukraine 
and and um, nobody complained about that. And so we just we need to be down there at the southern border physically. I, I'm not saying there's a lot of policy that can be done. Congress needs to come together and revisit our asylum laws and fund immigration courts and judges down there so we can hear these asylum cases more quickly, which on average it takes like three years to hear an asylum case. That's just broken. So there are things we can do legislatively, but just a show of force by the Democrats, whether it's Joe Biden going to the southern border or Kamala Harris camping out or Democrats just having a delegation down there or whatever it is, I don't know. But we need to show we give a damn. That's something I've learned over the last two years with Joe Biden and the Democrats in control is you don't always have to solve the problem, but you got to show the American people that you give a damn. And you do that with, with theater by, by just being in a place and talking about it. And the Republicans are taking advantage of the Democrats not doing that. I understand there's bigger fish to fry and the Democrats aren't being lazy. There, there's tons of things to deal with and, and they're focused on that. But when Fox News is showing the border being overrun every day and it, it's even resonating around the world where people in South and Central America are seeing that on Fox News and hearing the borders open and coming and there's no pushback from the from our side then it's they're winning winning the minds and hearts of the people with that and people are convinced that the border is being overrun and it's just not the case i mean the, the border communities are overwhelmed nobody's denying that and they need federal assistance they can't afford to blow up their budgets and to house these people and and put them on buses to wherever they want to go where they have sponsors and people to help them out uh, but we need to have a big show of force at the southern border. So I'm looking forward to that. I think the Democrats are going to do it. I think the Democrats were kind of hoping that the Supreme Court would let Title 42 get overturned, which they did not, um, so that it would become such a problem that um, the Republicans would be finally forced to do something about it instead of just bitch and moan. Uh, but that didn't happen. So I, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to see some big moves at the southern border here from the Democrats because out of all the issues out there, inflation, crime, gas prices, Ukraine, this the southern border seems to be the one that is just getting worse while the others seem to be getting better. So why not focus on it? Well, there you go, guys. Thanks for tuning in to my podcast. Really appreciate it. Coming out with us live on Twitch. I'm, I'm streaming. I'm going to start this week at 2 p.m. Pacific, if I can, two hours early, and try to go a few extra hours. I'm going to try to talk about some more general subjects. I'm full-time now with content creation. I, I left my business uh, last year. I'm still going to be doing a little bit to make sure some long-term long clients can find alternative services, but um, I, I'm 100% focused on this content creation after four and a half years of doing it part-time, so I'm a little tired, but uh, I'm excited for what I can do like with stuff like this, a podcast, and trying to get on TikTok and reach a new audience and do some more on YouTube and just more hours on Twitch, maybe touching some more general subjects, watch a Jubilee video here or there. I've got some other ideas just to kind of um, bring in a bigger audience and then and then um, sneak in some politics and some insight on Congress and, and maybe get some more people excited about our government and to be a little more optimistic about it, too. Uh, but we, we got to appeal to people in, in other ways before we give them their vegetables. You know what I mean? So that's uh, that's what I'm thinking going into this new year. I'm very excited, very optimistic and 
Uh, it's great to be surrounded by so many of you guys who are in the same boat. So I appreciate you guys. And that'll do it for this week. I'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.